This episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is part of our new Pathways campaign. What is something you used to think that you've changed your mind about? It's time for us to do that with all things learning. Previous Getting Smart campaigns have laid the groundwork of networks, place, purpose, and innovation. Our latest effort, the new Pathways campaign, will serve as a catalyst for unbundling education to allow for new learning models that are sustained by support and guidance and embedded in scalable systems. In partnership with ASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Stand Together, and the Walton Foundation, the new Pathways campaign will question education status quo and propose new methods of giving students a chance to experience success in what's next. Find out more at gettingsmart.com backslash new pathways. The Getting Smart team recently hosted a town hall event focused on Ed 3.0, aka how Web3 will likely empower a new generation of learning. We were joined by some special guests who focused on how Web3 is both a technology and an ethos that's going to shape learning going forward. Web3, metaverses, and the like are things that Getting Smart continues to think a lot about, and honestly, we're not totally sure how we feel about them. That being said, we think it's important to keep having the conversation and keep talking to experts who know a lot more than we do about it. We promise to keep sharing our learnings as we go. All right, we hope you enjoy. All right, I think we'll get started. Um, Welcome, everybody, to uh, Getting Smart Town Hall. We're so excited to talk about everything Web3 and uh, the corollary for education, Ed3. Uh, where has education been and where will it go next? So today we're talking about Web3, applications to education. Uh, we are going to start with just a quick preamble to get everybody on the same foundation uh, from beginner to advanced uh, around what is Web3, at least our current interpretation of it. And then we're going to do a, a deep dive um, with Vridi and Mike, uh, who will introduce themselves uh, when they start talking just about what's so great about Ed3. And that'll answer a bunch of the questions that um, have come up in the chat. So we're gonna talk about credentials, we're gonna talk about workforce, DAOs, uh, distributed autonomous organizations and uh, new forms of governance and the metaverse in general, because we're hearing a lot about the metaverse and, and how on earth does that connect to web three. When we think about web, one of the easiest ways that at least I think about it, and um, we uh, it helps when I try to explain it to others, especially in the education sector is, we have web 1.0, we have web 2.0 and web 3.0. So Web 1.0 was the earliest version of the web. So this was the what, what some people call the information economy. A lot of information going out onto the internet and shared. So it was a read-only situation. So that was Web 1.0. We currently transitioned into Web 2.0, which some people call the platform economy, which is not only reading, but you're actually contributing, you're writing, you're participating in all the social media, all the places where you can uh, write blogs, whatever the case may be. So it's a big, it was a big step up from Web 1, which was just read-only, Web 2, which was read and write. And then the third piece is, is moving into this idea of Web 3. And, and to clarify, Web 3 exists right now. It is not at scale right now. And ultimately, Web 3 will probably be in a situation where, just like right now, we don't know how the nuts and bolts of the, the reason I can talk to all of you on a screen, Web 3 will exist in the same way. It'll be a term that Maybe some people really have to be familiar with in the coding and, and computer science realm, but most people, most users, most educators, most students, it won't matter very much. It'll be a user experience on top of it that matters. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. But to quickly define it, 
Web3 is what people call the ownership economy. So right now, digital assets in Web2 are really difficult to own. When we put something on the web, it's owned by some other company, organization, et cetera. So if, if, uh, if you are posting something on Facebook, that's owned by Meta. It's not owned by you. And so Web3 posits that the ownership economy allows us to not only read, not only write and create, but actually own what we have created. And that's a huge step because once you own something and you're able to distribute it and uh, uh, share it, et cetera, and use it, uh, the, the ownership is not um, by a centralized company or database, et cetera. It's owned by you as the user. And that's a big step. So we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today with our awesome guests. So, um, Reedy, I'd love to start with you. Uh, I'm going to just tell me when to flip slides. Sure thing. Hi, everyone. Great to see everyone here. Uh, I'm Vridi Saraf. I uh, am the founder of an organization called K20 Educators. We're building a metaverse environment for learning. And then also co-founder with Mike of Ed3DAO, which is the first DAO or decentralized autonomous organization for educators by educators. And our goal is to educate educators about Web3 because we believe that Web3 is going to proliferate a lot faster than we think, and it's going to have a huge impact on the world. And we want to make sure that our students are ready for it. And so we believe that educators can be multipliers. Um, and so the, the way that Nate described uh, Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, uh, there's the thing that we are really excited about is not only that the technology is evolving. So as Nate said, Web 1, you know, most of us weren't able to code, so we weren't able to contribute to the Internet. Um, but then Web 2 allowed social media to come into play so we could actually start, you know, sharing things on the Internet. And now Web 3, we can own our own data. There's actually a bigger um, movement that is happening with Web3, and that has to do with the principles and the ethos behind Web3. And um, to be honest, a lot of these concepts aren't new, uh, but the reason why they're so exciting today, especially for education, is because the technology is allowing us to build the infrastructure to support um, all of this sort of like new ethos and principles. So the, the first sort of evolution that's happened between Web1, Web2, and Web3, um, Nate, you can click the, the button, it'll transition is that um, Web 1 actually started off with um, a builder's mindset. So in Web 1, people were building a lot of content and they were offering a lot of things for free, right? So the, the first versions of the internet, uh, you know, browsers, the first versions of apps, they were all free. Um, but then in Web 2, when social media came into play, these big companies like Google, Amazon started realizing, well, we can't um, you know, do this for free forever because we still have to make a profit off this. We, we have to generate revenue. We have to keep our business operating. And so, um, in, so they continued offering things for free, but then they started sort of uh, using our data to sell us ads and also to um, sell ads to sell, sell our data to companies that could leverage those ads to sell us products. And so the mindset between Web 1 and Web 2 turned from builder's mindset to business mindset, right? That's a huge difference between how um, the web operated. And then web three, what's happening today is that we are trying to basically create the best of both worlds where we want there to be as much building and innovation as possible, but we also can't lose uh, you know, sight of the fact that businesses still have to operate. They still have to generate revenue in order to actually build us new products. And so it's actually focusing a little bit on both things. Um, so the innovation and the business piece, but the business piece now belongs to small companies instead of big companies. 
The next one is um, the idea of open source versus closed source. So um, in web one, most of the things that were created were open um, and open sourced. And so people could sort of build upon them. And then because the business mindset was proliferating, a lot of um, organizations started closing their data. So you couldn't really duplicate a lot of things that were happening because they were proprietary and, and IP oriented. But today, because the web, um, Web3 is bringing about new technologies like blockchain and AI and all these things, a lot of people are building open source content. And if they're not um, ultimately putting their entire product on open source, they're putting at least a version of it open source so that people can actually innovate upon it. So that companies might not have full competition, but they're actually um, really encouraging other people to build on their innovations. Um, and that's sort of like the, the principle and, and of how you know, most of our Web3 communities operate. So for example, our DAO is a nonprofit public DAO. And most of the things that we actually generate are open source because we just want people to, to learn from it and you know, uh, move innovation forward. Um, the third piece is uh, in web one, uh, we focused on collaboration and sort of like bringing together different entities, individuals to build things. And then web two, it became monopolized, right? Again, because of the business mindset, there were more monopolies, um, you know, emerging. So, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, um, all of those um, organizations were like, well, we want, you know, the, the stake in everything. Today, um, Web3 is actually moving back towards a collaboration model where a lot of organizations are actually um, not afraid to share their product with other people and not afraid to share the market with other people because the emphasis and the focus is no longer on monopolizing, but the focus is on, well, let's all build together and let's all gain a profit together um, and not worry about becoming you know, multi-billionaires. The next one um, and sort of the last one is the idea of innovation-minded versus money-minded. So in web one, we were innovation-minded. We wanted to create new tools and resources so that um, they were exciting and sort of um, innovating the technology forward. And then web two, it became money-minded again because of the business mindset. And so we sort of like started focusing on selling data, on fake news, on misinformation because we wanted to sort of like maximize how much money we can make. So today, um, the idea is that we want to strike a balance between the innovation and the money going to individuals. So there's a lot of emphasis on individual ownership of data and self-sovereign identities and all those kind of things that we'll talk about later, um, but it's really moving towards that. And then that last orange box is the idea of regeneration. So the concept of regenerative economies, regenerative learning has been around for quite a while. Um, if you guys are interested, uh, check out John Fullerton's work um, on regenerative economies, really like interesting, uh, you know, brilliant stuff where he basically talks about, you know, is it possible for us to build businesses that are not only impactful and beneficial to the company building the business, but also to the community and the world? Is there a way that when I make money, somebody else can make money too? So that's the concept of regenerative economies. And there's a lot of different sort of prongs to it that we're not going to go into right now. Um, but there's also a concept of regenerative learning, which is like, when I learn, is it possible for other person for another person to learn? Or is there a way that we can create a virtuous cycle of learning? So these are all the concepts that are sort of like changing um, with, with Web3. Um, and then I'll, I'll go over this really quickly. So there's four um, workforce trends that we've identified that Web3 is really going to proliferate over the next few years. Um, the gig economy, creator economy, remote work and learning, and unbundled learning. So gig economy and creator economy are, uh, so gig, gig workers are basically your like non-nine-to-vivers, the people that are consultants and contractors and, and day workers and things like that. Um, and the gig economy, uh, I think it uh, it generates, I think it's a 
200 billion, I think so far in gross volume over the last like few years. And it's um, said to, it's going to potentially, you know, 10X in the next 10 years. And the reason for that is because um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies are allowing people to work from anywhere, um, anytime they want. And so the transaction uh, costs of time, capital, um, talent are much fewer because you can actually, um, you know, gain access to talent from anywhere um, now that you have this sort of global currency. Creator economy also is going to increase because with, um, you know, your data being owned by yourself and not by another company, a centralized entity, you are able to actually sell directly to the consumer. So as a creator, as a YouTube creator or whatever kind of creator you want, you can actually, you know, have access to individuals on your own. Um, remote work and learning, uh, you know, metaverse environments and virtual environments we know have um, increased in popularity because of COVID. Um, the truth is that we were always heading that way. COVID just catalyzed almost like a five-year, um, you know, acceleration of it. And so um, the concept of remote learning is going to continue um, increasing because the metaverse allows there to be so much more flexibility and enhancement of learning experiences and work experiences. And then the other thing that people have realized in, in the workforce is with remote work, you can get access to so much more talent at a cheaper cost and at a more diverse uh, sort of demographic. So it's actually easier. So my, our, our entire company, both for K20 and for the Dow is located all over the world, simply because it's so easy to work with those people around the world. And then the last one is unbundled learning. Um, so again, the concept of having remote work, uh, learning and the concept of um, being able to pay with different types of currencies really easily with no transaction costs will increase the ability for learners all over the world to be able to access learning from different um, providers, different facilitators in different environments. And so what that does, um, if you want to hit next, Nate, um, is that it basically creates this like ability for us to um, think about what students are really going to need in order to be ready for these, um, these uh, new um, uh, evolutions and developments in the world. And so these are four, um, you know, uh, competencies that we've identified that students would really benefit from, because the truth is, and we can get into this later, like, we're never going to be able to prevent our students from using things like AI to generate, you know, essays or um, being able to, you know, be in Roblox and, and access all of these sort of like enhanced environments and sometimes even really detrimental and like negative environments and language. And so these are the four sort of competencies that we've um, identified that would help students best. So agency to support, you know, uh, individual um, ability to like create your own companies and entrepreneurship and, and, and access opportunities that are not in the nine to five realm. Critical thinking and evaluation, um, you know, that's a pretty common one that isn't commonly taught in school, surprisingly. Social emotional learning is really important because the more time that kids are gonna spend online, the more time they're gonna need to know the value of human relationships and social awareness and self-awareness and then digital citizenship. So this is another thing that um, sort of that I've created as a framework for thinking about how education is changing. So Web One, we said was read um, in the classroom. Uh, you know, we're going back to sort of like you know Aristotle era and villages. You know, the, the web, the classroom was really the community, and the teacher was really a sage. Uh, web Two, when we started sort of like using social media, we call it right. 
Um, the classroom became the schools. We actually walled off learning into schools and into sort of like these, these rooms. And the teacher became a trainer, right? We train kids to, to behave well, to take tests well, to, you know, do certain sort of like skills well. Um, and now what's happening is with ownership economy, um, the classroom is becoming the world because metaverse allows you to access basically everybody around the world. And, you know, the internet basically has opened up so many different worlds to people. Um, and then the teacher is, is a guide on the side, right? And this is a framework that some schools have been employing for several decades, but most schools and most teachers haven't yet because we haven't sort of like, you know, gotten to that evolution level yet. Awesome. Brady, thanks for that overview. Uh, Mike, can you do a quick introduction and, and then walk us through these three ideas? Hi, everyone. Um, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Mike Peck. Uh, I am a director of technology in a public school district in Pennsylvania, uh, where I support our, our teachers and learners um, who are, are exploring just various innovations across our district. And, um, you know, super excited to be able to be here and share with you some of my experiences um, in, in both the education worlds. And so I, I kind of like to come at this from a, a grounded perspective where like, how does this apply to me in my current job? Um, I'm also co-founder of Ed3DAO along with Reedy, she had mentioned earlier. So um, yeah, I, as far as like um, the space goes, a lot of this is very, very new and very emergent. But one of the questions that comes up all the time is like, how does this apply to me? Um, how is blockchain gonna, you know, sit in my schools or how is the metaverse gonna be a part of my uh, schools? And I think we can look at this space and broadly we can look at this in two different ways. Um, and the first bucket is, okay, well, well, what impacts will the technology itself bring into our schools? Which is one way to look at this. And the other way Vridi was talking about was how, how is this technology gonna play a part in the future of work? And um, we're already seeing that part play out and so our job as educators in, you know, very broad terms is to help our young people prepare for their next steps in life. How, how do we lay out their pathways for them to be able to access the opportunities that are being brought to them with this new technology? So you can liken it to um, the time, let's say 2010, um, where I was teaching in the classroom and social media started to emerge in, um, in my classes or outside of school, I should say, at first. You know, and I think one of the important parts is, you know, we have to think about the fact that we're at this tipping point for potentially the next iteration of the web. And so we have an opportunity to be able to um, get involved here um, and start thinking about the types of things we can do to prepare our young people for their next steps. And when we talk about Web3, um, there are some pretty general themes that we're seeing emerge from the space. Now, try not to get hung up on the terms here, but one of the things that um, you know, we see in Web3, just like we see in education, is there is a lot of jargon. Um, and these terms will be familiar to you in other ways, um, the first of which is permissionless. So we're talking about blockchains, one of the things that uh, is, is a building principle for many of them is that people are able to freely participate and access these tools um, to be able to use uh, in uh, their own needs or for their own needs and own purposes. Now, for us here in education, one of the words that we've been talking about for the last decade or so is access. How do we provide access for our young learners? Um, the next term, self-sovereign, uh, which in, in terms of how we apply this in Web3 is we're talking about users owning and controlling their data. 
Um, and when we think about this in education, you know, again, we're sort of talking about access, but also, you know, ownership. How do we get owner or learners to own their own learning? And then the last big theme that we're seeing broadly play out in Web3 is decentralization. And that means that as uh, Nate was uh, beginning with uh, when we started the session today, that is that we're not seeing single entities own everything. Um, today in education, very broadly, we're seeing um, you know, quite a few companies that have created very large followings in particular. You know, we have Google and Microsoft, which own a lot of the data that gets used and ported across all sorts of different places. And uh, that, that data, by and large, is not owned by our learners or our educators. And so when we talk about this term, you know, one of the things that I think of in education is equity. You know, what, what is our ability to own this information? What is our ability to engage with these protocols or these tools in a way that gives me equal access to everyone else? Um, and so we're moving away in Web3 from, um, from walled gardens to a more open internet. And so those are some of the broad themes that we're seeing um, you know, in the space play out now. And again, these will manifest themselves in different ways, both in the future of work and also in our classrooms eventually. And the question is, how does it play out in our classrooms and, and how can we shape that narrative going forward? Awesome. So we're gonna launch into a, a, just three different big questions for the second half of the town hall. As we walk through those, I'm gonna ask Reedy and Mike just to, to do a, a very short sort of what their thought is on this. And then what you all, what I'd love for you to do is think about what are the possibilities, what are the big questions you have around these three questions uh, and how Web3 may enable this? So uh, all of them will be up at once. So the bolded one in the upper left is first. So the first one is, how can Web3 better offer and verify learning experiences? And by learning experiences, it means anything that a person can learn. And so why can Web3 do this better than our current condition in Web2 or even in the real world. So so um, maybe Vridi, start us with that, just a, your opinion on that. And then Mike, I'll go to you and we'll see what kind of questions come up. Yeah. Um, so I'll take it from two different perspectives. Uh, one is that we are in, an, in the age of innovation where we are just more prepared to um, offer a variety of learning experiences at a variety of access levels than we ever happened before. So I think one of the reasons, um, if you all are familiar with MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courses, um, often the argument is that MOOCs were not successful. And the argument there is that um, they weren't successful because they like didn't sort of like change the way that student outcomes were um, uh, were delivered and and how uh, much you know content students were able to access. But I think you know when MOOCs came out. Um, you know, we didn't actually have this culture of spending time online. So one of the perspectives here is that Web3 is the evolution of, of, of the internet because it is the evolution of time also. Um, and so today we are far more um, acclimated to being online, having learning experiences online, spending time and building relationships online um, more so than ever before. So this time right now is going to help us verify learning experiences because we're gonna be able to do more evaluations online, more assessments online, and be able to actually own our data because we have this sort of like unbundled infrastructure. And then the other perspective of that is like the technology itself, right? And Mike can talk a little bit more about this, but 
blockchain allows you to um, have this uh, this uh, self-sovereign identity, this um, identity that is not attached to the government or to Facebook or to Google, and it's attached to you, which means that um, when you actually receive a certificate or a credential uh, from an institution or from a provider around the world, you can actually own the credential instead of an institution owning the credential. And what that allows you to do is create a portfolio, an academic portfolio that lasts not just for your elementary school years or for your high school years or your college school years, but for your entire life. So that means that when you actually take courses throughout your academic career um, until college, but then you also take, you know, uh, higher education courses or continuing education courses when you're, you know, employed or when you're 50 or when you're 100, you can put all that learning into one portfolio that acts as your sort of like lifetime academic portfolio. And to be able to see your own learning and be able to share your learning with, you know, whatever employer or institute you want to share it with is so much more of a powerful experience than, you know, having to call your bursar and putting all those sort of transcripts together. It also allows you to have a more holistic experience, uh, sorry, perspective of your experience. So like if I wanted to add to my academic portfolio that I had taken a robotics class and an AI class, but I also, um, you know, volunteered uh, with, you know, the, the kids in New York Cares, or if I, um, you know, built a project that, um, you know, was a, uh, you know, was an SDG aligned project or um, that I really love plants. And so there's like an, you know, a plant course in there too. That allows, you know, em future employers to have a much more holistic um, impression of who that person is without um, having that, uh, without having to actually, you know, uh, uh, dig into their sort of like personal background because they have everything in their sort of academic portfolio. So I'll, I'll stop there. And then I know Mike is going to get much deeper into like the academic backpack and digital credentials. Yeah, Mike, yeah. if you could just yeah tie, th think about it sort of briefly, how does that connect mm -hmm. to what does the wallet look like? What's that in, in, in tangible terms for a learner in schools? What is that going to look like and feel like uh, outside of the technology that supports it? Because that may be not as important. Yeah, I think like there, there's a couple of things I would mention. And first, I would, I would, uh, there was a question someone had posted earlier uh, about, well, does this mean the end of schools? And and I think the answer is no, doesn't end schools. But what we will see probably is a shift to thinking more broadly about how we um, allow learners access uh, and then authenticate those experiences. So. One of the things that's really important is, uh, and a lot of schools are, are going this direction in providing their learners pathways to access internships and externships and you know community service, like these types of things that we've been asking of our students for a long time, but haven't really authenticated or verified in any kind of way. So, so now we can start to expand perhaps our, our uh, definition of what a teacher is um, to include others who are in our communities, our experts, our business people, um, even within our own, you know, households, like how can those experiences be verified and authenticated? And a lot of that has to do with using better rails for data. Um, right now, our, our rails for data are pretty much your Google account and whatever Google permits access to. So if, if we're thinking about blockchain as a way to be able to offer better learning experiences, verifiable learning experiences, you know, for, for the learners, um, when they uh, go out in the community and they learn something from a community expert or participate in an internship, um, they can receive verifiable credentials that 
um, are received in their little wallet that lives on their phone. And sorry, it was all blocked out, but their little wallet that lives on their phone, uh, which can then be used um, in, in terms of any situation where they may need, may need to verify what it is that they know and understand, perhaps with a school, perhaps with an employer, um, perhaps with you know, another you know, learning opportunity where they're stackable and unlockable. And so these credentials living in a wallet can be instantly verified because they have hashes on a blockchain. And so we're, we're unlocking some new potentials here because we're building better rails for data. Yeah, and I think that's the, if we think about the really tangible example is that if you have a degree from a higher ed institution or a secondary school and you wanna get a copy of that, you have to pick up the phone or email, call, they have to usually pay a small fee. They call. They typically send it to you, either a digital copy and or a mail copy. Then you can go and distribute it to someone. When we have a digital uh, uh, wallet where we're collecting credentials that are authenticated in Web3, none of that has to happen anymore. It's already done. And so every learner has access to everything that they've learned. And with self-sovereignty, like Mike was talking about, is they actually have control about what's released to the world. And so that control is really, really important. Control by the learner themselves, the user themselves. So let's, I'm just, I'm watching time here and there's a lot of interesting questions coming through. Um, I, I, I wanna talk about the, the I might go to the, the, the third question first, which is um, how can Web3 enable more access and more participation? So if we think about metaverses and DAOs and governance, um, how uh, how does Web three allow for more access from a from a learner from in the the ed space? Like, what does that look like in terms of a learning experience where maybe it's more accessible? Reedy, you want to start us off with that? Yeah. So, um, how can we get more access to learning? Is essentially the question. Yeah. How can Web three enable more access and participation? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll talk about the DAO just because it's like the the perfect sort of use case here. Um, a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization is essentially like a co-op that lives on on blockchain. And the way that it works is that um, you know it has the general infrastructure and sort of uh, governance structure of a co-op or some somewhat some like of a holacracy model or some sort of like social model that allows everybody in the organization to be able to make decisions that are important for the, the company. Um, but it also automates those things through blockchain. So basically you can um, create voting structures where there's no middleman for or biased person that actually like evaluates whether that vote is valid or not. It just sort of like goes through on blockchain. It also allows disbursement of funds on blockchain. So what all of those things can do is you can actually create much better systems for how companies operate because of a DAO model. Um, and so some of the use cases there are that, um, you know, if we're running a nonprofit DAO model, which basically means that our goal is for the DAO model to have these like nodes that have uh, different projects that are being led completely autonomously. Um, and folks can sort of like get paid and make votes um, and sort of like, you know, uh, contribute and collaborate in ways that are like completely automated um, so that, you know, there isn't this sort of like big brother situation where so you have to ask for permission to do things. And that increases the idea um, of collaboration and connection because there's no longer, you know, like I said, like a, a governing governing sort of like, you know, human being like, hey, you can or cannot do this. It's all sort of embedded into the, the DNA of the organization. 
Um, so, so that's a really neat thing. And, and what we are seeing are, um, you know, ideations and examples of this emerging in different concepts. Like you can have a Dow school where the students and the teachers and the parents are actually the ones who vote on what the curriculum should be or how the funds should be allocated or what kind of after school activities there should be or whether they should take tests or not. And the cool thing about that is that if you have a DAO school in that way and you set the parameters in a way that's sort of automated, um, the decisions can be made much faster, even though it's democratic vote. And um, every single person is an investor in that DAO, um, whether it's, you know, capital investment or human or talent or, you know, time investment. And so it makes it really hard to have a scapegoat, which I think schools often have when something goes wrong or organizations often have. And it also makes it um, really hard not to, you know, give it your all because you are actually a part of, you know, the success or the failure of this organization. So like that, the DAO model has a lot of potential for like all kinds of institutions and organizations, um, university models, learning models, um, you know, uh, big corps, anything that can sort of, you know, create this sort of democratic process. It's not easy. It is super, super hard and it has not been perfected yet. So for the next 10 years, we're probably going to be figuring out like how to actually make the system happen well, but it has a lot of potential. Um, so so I'll, I'll pause there. I'm, I'm sure Mike has more thoughts about um, sort of inclusivity, but like that's one thing that we're really excited about that DAOs actually allow for you know, a lot more collaboration, but in a way that's actually efficient, which has not been the case in the last hundred years. Right. So you you uh, coined a phrase or termed a phrase, the Dow School. And I think that's something that we all need to think about is like, what would school look like if it was in a Dow formation and, or Dow version of it? And then um, one of, I, I don't know if it was one of you two or someone in the Ed Dow coin or, or was talking about the idea of of uh, what does bits to atoms look like? So in your in your Dow School, it's not going to be 100% online. There's going to be atoms parts of it. So parts of it's going to be in bits, zeros and ones, technology-wise. And, and, and the other part's going to be physically in the real world as well, I think. And so just trying to understand that. So, um, Mike, your thoughts on, on DAOs and maybe just chime in a little bit about connection to the metaverse, because you can imagine a school in the metaverse as well, just as much as a school in, a, in, a, in the function or in the formation of a DAO. So, so um, does a metaverse require a DAO, how are they connected? If people want to be clarified on those terms. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they have to be connected. I think they can stand alone on their own. Um, as far as like the whole notion of a DAO, like I think it's really important to um, really consider fundamentally like what this is about. It's we're, we're shifting power. Uh, we're shifting power from the hands of a few to the hands of many. Um, and so like Reedy's analogy of a co-op is a great example of that. You know, we're flattening the organization and where as individuals, you know, in the school right now, you know, everybody is kind of pulling their weight. But, you know, we, we all don't have the same voice in the way that the school operates. And so when we talk about DAOs, we're, we're seeing, you know, much flatter organizations where the individuals who are participating, and contributing, you know, are the ones who are really pulling the weight. And so um, the other part I would say, too, that's that we're seeing broadly out of the space is that. Um, DAOs are a way for us to better align ourselves together. Um, we align our incentives around uh, our mission, our goal, and in education broadly, we've we've had a lot of different uh, you know missions to serve. Whether it's for those who are in our community or for federal, state, 
you know, funding requirements or testing requirements? Like how could schools in, in a DAO model um, better align their incentives around, you know, the needs of the people they serve? Um, and so that's another big question I think DAOs are addressing on their own, but could be a, a really important part of how they emerge in schools. Um, but particular to the metaverse, um, I don't think they're, they're you know, required to be one and the same. A DAO doesn't have to be a metaverse. A metaverse doesn't have to be a DAO. Um, but a lot of people were asking really great questions about the metaverse. And, you know, first of all, it's not Facebook's version of the metaverse. There's many different forms of this. But I think it's a really interesting, um, a really interesting tool that we can use in certain specific circumstances. And I know, um, you know, I've heard from some of our community members uh, when they've talked about the potential of the metaverse and in ways I hadn't even thought about. Um, in particular, um, someone who's I believe on the call today, um, Jess had shared her thoughts on how we can use, uh, you know, XR, VR, AR spaces to be able to support neurodiverse learners. Um, allow them to see situations digitally and practice in these situations digitally um, as, as opposed to having to go out in the real world to experience them for the first time. So it's sort of like a gradual release type tool. Um, like how can we use these tools in very specific circumstances to be able to enable uh, or facilitate coordination or behaviors that we otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to without the technology? Yeah, um, really important. Um, uh, Elise, I, I, you, you DM'd me and I appreciate that. I wonder if you could just, just if you would just take uh, like 30 seconds to just push, push back on us a little bit uh, around the metaverse. And, and we're not saying that it's like everything has to happen in the metaverse. I think we're saying it's inevitable, but I really appreciate your point of view and wondering if you could unmute for a second and just give us your perspective because it's a really good one. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, I, I guess so. We'll... The I just took a quick look at the um, metaverse and the education thing that was sent that's sponsored by Meta, the company. So I think it is really hard to to separate what you know large corporations are sort of pushing us towards in terms of technology, and whether it has been, I'd say no, and will be good for youth, young people, which is who educators stand up for. So um, I just uh, yes to using digital. Uh, tools to enhance access to unbundle learning. You know, all these these seem, seem like great um, goals, but um, the idea of encouraging more children to spend more time as pixels than live and in person, given where we are right now in this world, seems crazy to me. And I, I follow getting smart. Um, get smart and your newsletters and everything all the time. And I, this is the first webinar that I've tuned into. And I, I'm, I'm actually, I have a chill down my spine, honestly. Yeah. It's hey. super interesting. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, Elise. And I, I think, um, you know, the, our purpose here is really to say there is something out there that's coming and, and it's, a, it's a signal. So for us, it's, it's signaling that there's something out there, regardless of what we decide to do in schools or not. And so being uh, aware and prepared and then talking about the advantages and also as you have done and others have done in the chat is we should we should approach with caution. We should think about it with trepidation. We should think about real world and how humans interact. And that's a really powerful thing that we've all evolved to do really well. And, 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 and pixelating everything is not gonna be the answer, I, I think. Um, so we, we need to be thinking hard about the pros and cons. So I, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, 
So let's see, someone else had their hand up here. Aria, maybe? Yeah, Aria, would you like to say something? Hi, yeah, thanks. Just a um, a question. Uh, so I've been working on this Ed3 um, at my university, and I, I can't seem to find a good answer to the question other than um, efficiency, which I, I mean, is, a, is an answer. Um, what can we do in web, like what can a DAO do for education that we can't just do in some kind of shared governance structure that's not on the blockchain? And, and I would love like to really know, like this isn't so much a pushback as I feel like there's something there that's really powerful, but I just, I don't know how to articulate what that is. Cause I keep coming up against all the reasons it's like, but do we need the blockchain for that? No, we really don't um, in terms of a DAO and shared governance. Yeah, yeah, super good question. Mary, I see your hand up. Do you want to comment on Aria's question or? Okay, great. So Mary. Yes, what I'm seeing is the problem in our state of Nevada. We just had a convening over the last two days to ask this very question. And what I am realizing is that the fear of this future is causing us to not want to go forward with it. And my, my answer or suggestion to how we overcome this fear and uncertainty about the impact on our kids and the difficulty that the teachers are having with it is that we do some prototyping around it. We find some really great examples of how to do the Dow and education that Riti spoke about that we showcase the kids want this so badly. Five kids came up to me after I expressed this during this convening and said, I wanna be a part of what you're talking about. We need to unleash the kids to be the designers of it. Then the adults will come on board and see, oh, I see how to be a, co a coach to you now. I see how that we can make the school a more of a learning lab as opposed to a classroom with 30 kids per room. So I think we have to model this and we have to use the community learning centers, not necessarily try to change the structure of a school right now, showcase it outside the school, do the DAO, do the competency-based credentialing, which I love and I'm trying to design it as a system. So whoever can, I'd love to work with somebody to be a pilot for this um, because our state is actually ready and needing to be an innovator and a leader in this. So. Just put it out there. I'm ready to partner. Yeah. yeah I'll, by the I'll way, I'm in the Education Innovation Collaborative, which is a nonprofit in Nevada. Awesome. Thank you, Mary. Um, just the reality of the situation um, is that every single kid, I think there's like 10 million kids or more than that in Roblox and, and Minecraft. I, I think it's far more than that. It's, I think it's like 100 million or something like that. And um, we can't stop kids from accessing technology. We can't stop humans from accessing tech. But we, what we can do is we can help them understand um, how to sort of interact with the tech in a way that is ethical, in a way that is beneficial to their mental health and their development, and in a way that is going to actually contribute to society. And that's really what Ed3DAO is about. Um, we are, you know, we, we are experts um, as far as experts can go in the last like two years of the evolution of Web3 um, in what is happening in the world, in the realm through a technology perspective. Um, but we are more so sort of pushing this idea that like 
let's get you all, the people that are asking questions that are in education on the ground, to ask these critical questions and shape the way that we're actually using this tech for education. And let's make sure that like all of the things that we are afraid of, like how social media has you know, negatively impacted um, you know, our students in terms of mental health, things like that, don't keep happening and are actually um, you know, decreased as the Web3 uh, you know, uh, evolves. And so like, that's really our focus. Um, and so sometimes we don't even talk about the tech. Sometimes we talk about how can we actually apply these principles in the classroom so that they understand the, the foundational concepts. So for example, yesterday I was in our um, intro to DeFi class um, and uh, the, the assignment, the last assignment for that class is we are creating lesson plans for different um, developmental ages for how to incorporate Web3. And, and James, who's on the line, he and I were talking about where that, um, you know, for kindergartners, how can we teach them about Web3? We're not going to teach them about crypto. We're not going to teach them about blockchain. That's not relevant to them. But let's, let's teach them about the concept of tokenomics. Let's have them create a microeconomy in their school and create a token that they can trade with each other and even earn yield and interest rate and, and all that kind of stuff. And then use cryptocurrency as an example to show them all the graphs of like how inflation happens and all that kind of stuff. And I taught kindergarten. So I like, you know, I'm I, if you can sort of like create concepts that are foundational for students that they can understand at their level and apply in their own context. Um, then it just becomes so much easier for them for when they actually grow up to say, okay, well, I understand blockchain because I understand the basic concept and foundation of it. Uh, everybody really appreciate um, your, your time today. Really good questions, uh, whether it's pushback or for support, all those are super important. We have to have this dialogue to understand um, how can we take this emerging technology, which in some ways is, I really think is an inevitable and push it for the common good of the world rather than something that's destructive and not positive. So thank you all. Uh, appreciate your time today. And we'll see you all next time at our next town hall. Thanks, Bree. Thanks, Mike. This episode of the Getting Smart podcast is part of our new Pathways campaign. What is something you used to think that you've changed your mind about? It's time for us to do that with all things learning. Previous Getting Smart campaigns have laid the groundwork of networks, place, purpose, and innovation. Our latest effort, the New Pathways Campaign, will serve as a catalyst for unbundling education to allow for new learning models that are sustained by support and guidance and embedded in scalable systems. In partnership with ASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Stand Together, and the Walton Foundation, the New Pathways Campaign will question education status quo and propose new methods of giving students a chance to experience success in What's Next. Find out more at gettingsmart.com backslash new pathways. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.